Hello and welcome to the UUCSV podcast. I'm Evan Yannick and I'm glad you're listening. Our church has a mission to create an open, active, and welcoming liberal religious community that nurtures spirituality, inspires growth and learning in the search for truth, and challenges us to live our values conscientiously through service and example. Today, this February morning, was a packed house, and we heard a moving message from Minister Michael Carter on suffering. He pulled from the wisdom of many different traditions, and as usual, made us think and laugh along the way. I hope you enjoy. Talking about the Christian perspective on suffering, I'm using Dr. King as the model. Now, we know there are different ways to be Christian. And I also told you off and on that the, the religion of the oppressed is very different from the religion of the privileged. And so the Christianity that we'll be talking about here is very different from the Christianity we see today, which I would argue is a state-sponsored Christianity. Uh, if you, We can talk about it in the line if you don't like what I have to say. Uh, but I just want, this is, this is one way of looking at suffering from this perspective. Uh, next week we're going to talk about prayer, and so I'll let you connect those dots. But you'll see how prayer can play a role in uh, activism and just your day-to-day just trying to be a decent human being. Uh, and and I, I want to reiterate, I'm not telling you to pray, uh, not saying you should, but people do, and maybe you can get some insight on why they do. That'll be next week, but this is specific. So, we're going to cram this into 25 minutes. All this suffering. <laughs> wow. There are many uh, pithy sayings regarding what it means to suffer. Uh, Zen Buddhist, the late Zen Buddhist monk Suzuki Roshi said that you suffer and I suffer, therefore we are friends. Bob Marley said that everyone will hurt us and that we just have to figure out who it is worth suffering for. I, I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty good one. There's also an old proverb from the land of India that says, before we can properly see, we must first shed our tears to clean the way. And of course, Alan Watts reminds us that there will always be suffering, and we must learn not to suffer because of the suffering. But however you frame it, most human beings spend their lives, our lives, trying to avoid suffering. British philosopher John Stuart Mills wrote a treatise on utilitarianism where he says that people uh, try to escape suffering and that we will do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Now, he was assuming that men and women were motivated by the desire to increase pleasure and to escape pain. And that's what he was writing about. But we we know now through Buddhism and other disciplines, that you have to learn to train the mind to perceive life very differently because of the reality of impermanence. See, everything changes. Everything changes. 
Suffering is a part of life while we're in this incarnation, and it's almost impossible to escape. The teacher Jesus implies that suffering is an, an, inevitable part, an inevitable part of life, but he reminds us that the poor you will have with you always. He didn't say don't try to help them. He just said that they will always be among you. Carl Jung said that there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the dark conscious. The law of suffering was defined by Gandhi, who was a Hindu. He died a Hindu. As the necessity of the nonviolent actor to voluntarily endure suffering as a mechanism for transforming one's opponent. I have told you, my own personal opinion, that people do not change unless they're ready to change. These are not incompatible. Uh, it's just that you can go crazy trying to get people to change. This law rests on Gandhi's observation that real suffering, bravely born, melts away even a heart of stone. Such is the potency of suffering. Gandhi called this force satyagrafa, or soul force. So my goal this morning is to provide you with a Christian and Buddhist understanding of suffering. You just got the Hindu perspective. And in this way, perhaps you may see your own suffering and those of others in a different light, since suffering is not going anywhere anytime soon. And especially for those of you with an activist spirit, this may assist you in weathering the storms which most assuredly will come your way in this work. You can change it, be bilingual from God or Jesus or whatever floats your boat. Uh, and, and you can use this without having to change your belief system. Not unless you want to. So bear in mind that although Dr. King learned this perspective from Gandhi, the that unearned suffering is redemptive, this is still an Eastern teaching, as is Buddhism's perspective on suffering, which we will get to later. We're going to do Christianity first, and then we're going to do uh, Buddhism. So let's begin with Dr. King and a Christian take on this topic of suffering. The civil rights leader's understanding of suffering as and its redemptive power offers a hope for the church, not just the African-American church, but the church in the struggle against injustice, any kind of injustice. Martin Luther King's theodicy, and by that, his under theodicy is the understanding of human suffering, offers the church a source of strength and hope in the struggle against injustice today. King drew on 250 years of African people being in America in the black church tradition to understand human suffering as offering the possibility of redemption. And for him, the cross was uh, the root in this. 
It is the power to bring about a redemptive transformation, not only in the sufferer, but also in the person inflicting the suffering. Now that is key. Both people are changed if they're willing to be. It's a power that we see revealed primarily at the cross of Yeshua. He set an example of not passively accepting suffering, but actively and nonviolently engaging in justice and suffering when the situation calls for it. There are many critics of Gandhi and King. Uh, Malcolm was one, Malcolm X was one of them, uh, who say that the doctrine of redemptive suffering creates a passivity in the face of, of uh, suffering and injustice. But I ask you, did King's ministry seem passive to you? Did Gandhi's? That's the British Empire. They said the sun will never set on the British Empire. And Gandhi said, Really? <laughs> King was very critical of passivity in the face of injustice. The fact that all this is rooted in the cross for King and others shows that this is really about active engagement, not, practice, not, not uh, acquiescence. Uh, Good Friday has to come before Easter. Uh, this is the way life is. Uh, as the saying goes, and Christians believe that God will have the final say over injustice. King inherited a long history of struggles with the question of suffering. When African Americans were brought here to these shores in the bellies of slave ships, they struggled with the question, why am I suffering? If God can prevent my suffering and rescue me, why am I struggling in this way? We see it in the Hebrew Psalms, where they're asking Yahweh, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting it. We've done everything right. The question has been at the heart of the African-American experience. Why do people suffer? King would say that although suffering itself is not good, it presents an opportunity for redemptive engagement, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our enemies and oppressors and the systems and institutions in which they exist. So what's, that's what's redemptive at suffering. It doesn't mean you're a victim. Gandhi said that it's no, uh, uh, it's no shame in being a slave. There may be some shame in having been a slave owner, but, but you're not a victim. It doesn't dismiss you being victimized, but it says that our suffering does not have the last say. Howard Thurman says that the contradictions of life are never final. Okay, there are other sayings, right? The, the mark of the moral, moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Eventually, because this is the way the universe works, it's not personal that you've been a good person, and Michael, you're a good person. No, it's just that this is the, the law of life in this multiverse. I don't know about others. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you, because you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> Again, the power of unearned suffering in this context is to bring about a transformation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when, uh, before Jesus is arrested, we see different responses to suffering. Uh, one is passive acquiescence, right? Uh, uh, his brothers, the apostles, they flee, right? Because Rome plays hardball. 
Another is violent retaliation, where Peter responds with violence. In one gospel, he takes his sword, he cuts the high priest's ear, Jesus goes over and heals it, but that's another way to deal with, uh, uh, with violence. But through violent retaliation, uh, it just doesn't seem to work. Many people today affirm the goodness and power of God, even in the face of their suffering. You see this every day. It's on the news sometimes. Usually around issues of race, an African-American person will forgive you for murdering my son and you know that kind of thing. And I'm not trying to poo-poo that. I'm just kind of like, why is it always us that has to do it? But it, <laughs> it, it does give you pause, right? I mean, could you do that? I'm not saying you should. That's make you a bad person. But to say you murdered someone that I love, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go because you're already in deep you-know-what. That's the kind of unique, theological contribution that the black church has made to American theology and Christianity. We see it in the spirituals. King loved the spirituals. He loved the music, but uh, uh, that was a part of it. But he was actually learning his theology. He was learning theology, that belief in God's goodness, that God is able to make a way out of no way. You've heard that's a black church idiom. It's an expression of hope that is able to take what we might call the no way and fashion out of it. It takes the question mark of why am I suffering, and it makes it an exclamation point that trouble don't last always. At first, King was convinced that this could work on an individual level, that individuals and their personal relationships could do this. He believed that, but only one-on-one. But he was not convinced that it could work socially. Gandhi's example convinced him. Many people think that King got his commitment to nonviolence from Gandhi. That's not true. He got his methodology from Gandhi. He got his theology from Jesus. It's two different things. And he applied it to the social situation of people of color in the 50s and 60s. And what's beautiful about this is that it works, period. When this Chinese brother stood in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square, he lived to tell about it, and he said, I got this from Martin. I got this from that spirit. I'm not even going to stand in front of a tricycle. I'm not going to stand in front of a tank. <laughs> but this is, this is how powerful this can be. So in my mind, for true Christians, the entire philosophy of nonviolence is rooted in a public appropriation of the theology of the cross. I can stand before bull Carter's fire hoses and these German shepherds, and I'm going to just bring it. Now, Buddhism. The Buddha said this. I teach only one thing. One thing. Suffering and the end of suffering. That's all I'm teaching. One of the essential messages of the Buddha is that it's really important to get to know the experience of dukkha or dissatisfaction or suffering. It's translated in many ways, or stress. Dukkha is suffering. 
It refers to the unsatisfactoriness and the pain of everyday life. Just the day in, day out, being human. We cannot escape it. Notice the Buddha does not say that life is only dukkha, that life is only suffering, even though it's been translated. That's pretty depressing. But that's not what he said. He does say that this dukkha or suffering is a natural part of life. And that's what I want you to hear. Because you're going to get hemorrhoids and, and you're going to get headaches trying to, trying to go against the natural part of life. This is life. You cannot win it if you choose to. But this is life. We all must experience it as human beings, not to know it intellectually, not to write a thesis about it for the World Magazine, but to get to know it by meeting this experience directly. Until we know dukkha, we don't really have a way to end it. And the way to end it is not to be attached to outcomes. I do good because good is good to do, not because there's heaven or hell. I vote, and if I don't, my, my, my man or woman doesn't get in, I just have to... <laughs> I, I can't be have headaches for four years or eight years. You have to let it go. You do all you can. This is what he's talking about. Until we know dukkha, we, don't, we cannot end it. The discourse of the four truths that the Buddha gave after his awakening, did not begin with enlightenment, but with the encouragement to know dukkha in order to overcome it. To know the experience of suffering can sound fairly straightforward, but the mind is clever, and it's pretty slippery when it comes to suffering. We tend to say, the problem's not me. It's too hot or too cold in the room. It's not me. Uh, my parents screwed me up. I got, I got issues. My partner, I, 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 why did I pick her? My job, I, I, I'm broke. Of course, external factors contribute to our happiness or suffering. We don't need to dismiss the factors that shape our lives, but you don't have to try to figure out where the suffering comes from. Instead, you work with the pain and suffering as we experience it, without blaming others, repressing it, or projecting it outward onto the self, or some other selves, meeting suffering in this direct way doesn't preclude challenging or changing our collective circumstance, but it does empower us to stop unnecessary suffering at the place where we experience it, which is in the mind. In the mind. That's the worst place it can be. When we experience suffering, our first instinct is to move our attention away and distract ourselves. We have billion-dollar industries based on entertainment and consumption, keeping us distracted from this core truth of life. But we are, are we more content? Are we more happy? We can become addicted to pain. You ever been around people like that? Finding ourselves gravitating toward old worry, old wounds and resentments. We can tell other people, we can wallow in our own suffering. Oh, you think you got it bad. Let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> you ever been around people like that? I run the other way when I hear that. 
Some people become sufferers, great martyrs. Oh, no one suffers as much as... You don't, you don't know. I've seen, I've seen uh, oppressed groups do that. Holocaust versus African-American Holocaust. Who suffered the most? People do that. People do that. Who suffered the most? We all have complex reactions to this everyday experience of unsatisfactoriness. Often those reactions are personalized as my problem. It's my problem. It is very common for the mind to project suffering onto the self, interpreting suffering as a failure. We are failing because we suffer, right? Or the mind will project our suffering onto those around us. And somehow, it's not my fault. That's your fault. In this activity of projection and blame, we miss how the mind itself generates an endless stream of suffering through its inability to accept ourselves, others, and life as it is. See, who was it? Uh, Eckhart Tolle said it, many people said it. Stress is being here, but thinking I need to be there. Keeping us agitated in this reactivity. Therefore, we can't contemplate. We, We can't be here now. We can't be here now. It's too painful. The Buddha's way of explaining dukkha is great. He says, he didn't say it's your suffering, it's your fault. He didn't say the world's just a pile of you know what, suffering, he just said, there is suffering. Like I would say, it's cloudy outside. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is suffering. Dukkha is inherent within the everyday living. I had a wonderful uh, Valentine's Day. Hadn't uh, Hadn't suffered through Valentine's Day. I'm going to see someone about that. I hadn't, uh, (laughs) it's not what I meant to say, but luckily they're not in here because I'm sure they would say, really, was it that bad? Anyway, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I hadn't celebrated Valentine's Day since I was married. This is great. And it was painful. Boy, I got to leave. It's like Romeo and Juliet, you know, partying and such. I had to get over it because she has a job and I have a job. And I'm just using that as a minor example, but this is just everyday stuff. That's why you have to be in the moment. I can remember those moments. I can feel those moments, but they go. See? So the suffering was in my mind. I had to put my big boy pants on and leave. We must face this. Whatever form emerges, suffering is inherent. Why? Because things are impermanent. Things are impermanent. Nothing good lasts forever, and nothing bad lasts forever either. Dukkha is natural and not suffering. It becomes suffering when we grasp in our mind. It's important to know suffering, not to obsess about it, but just to beat it. It is different from pain. Buddhist thought makes a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain is a part of the experience. Buddha says, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. For example, getting sick is painful. Grief or loss for losing a loved one. This is natural and appropriate. But when we cling to it, 
where we tend to generate a whole extra layer of suffering through our difficulty to accept things as they are. Are you with me? This is, this is your mental health we're talking about. This is your spiritual health we're talking about. When we resist the natural flow of life, we create stress and suffering. No time did I say, do not work to change the world if that's what you figured you came here to do. Do it. But you have a different attitude. You'll last longer. You won't burn out. You won't get, you won't get upset when things don't go your way. You can be in it for the long haul. So I want you to hear that. No one's telling you not to go out and bring heaven on earth. I have other things I'd like to do. This will help you. We are doing the suffering. No one is doing it to us. It's because of this we can free ourselves from unnecessary suffering. Is it easy to do? No. But that's not the issue. It can be doable. Otherwise, Buddha wouldn't say it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And the Hindus had it going on before that. Krishnamurti says, the people who are sensitive in life may suffer much more than those who are insensitive, but if they understand and go beyond their suffering, they will discover extraordinary things. Dukkha is categorized as the pain of things ending. I just gave you an example. I didn't want my weekend to end. Right? And I could still be there upset about it, but another time. Even with pleasant experiences, there's suffering. Because the nature of things is to pass. That's just the nature of stuff. So you want to live in the moment. All things have endings already built in them. If we become attuned to this, we can appreciate the moment. We can even appreciate the suffering rather than resist it. We don't wish for suffering, but once we understand how to be in relationship with it, which is what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, it becomes the means through which we become more loving more giving, more authentic, and more wise people. But if you're always talking about it shouldn't be like this, it should be different, we should be in a heaven-like world, people should be more compassionate, compassionate, the government shouldn't be doing this, and you should all over yourselves. We weren't born into heaven. We were born into this world with its wars and its environmental degradation, and it's poverty, and it's BS. That's the world we're born into. There's difficulty and pain. Accepting the reality of suffering isn't an abdication of responsibility. It is a way to understand that the most effective way we can change the world is through the quality of our awareness, through our consciousness, right? Einstein said that you can't solve a problem with a the same consciousness that started it in the first place. Pick up a newspaper. Disgraceful. Even my daughter knows better. But evolution is slow. As we work to resolve our personal suffering, we lessen the possibility that our actions will increase the suffering that already exists. We don't add to it because we're more woke, as the young people say. We're more aware. We're more conscious. In the insightful words of Helen Keller, all the world 
is full of suffering. It is also full of great overcoming. Okay, may the love which it, uh, overcomes all differences, which heals all wounds, and which puts to flight all of our fears, uh, and reconciles all who are separated, yada, 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 love, 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 <laughs> be in us and among us, now and always, well, at least until next Sunday. Have a great afternoon. Thanks again for listening. I hope to have you back next time when we'll hear Reverend Michael Carter speak on prayer. Have a great week.